Grasp the Bible is a podcast of Spring Baptist Church that walks through selected books of the Bible, verse by verse, as well as spends time exploring biblical topics to help you understand and apply God's Word in your daily life. Pastor Dale Stein of our Klein campus will be leading each week's study. This is our 75th episode. Thank you for joining us today. Today we will be continuing our study in the book of Mark. So Pastor Daryl, as we, I mean, it kind of seems like we're about halfway down the slide home on the book of Mark. Mm -hmm. Are there any speed bumps or anything we need to know about today as we get into today's study? Yeah, so one of the issues Jesus is going to address in this particular passage is that of divorce and remarriage. So, uh, I know that uh, our church and churches across the country have folks who are divorced and remarried, and so uh, they might find Jesus' words here pretty interesting and hopefully um, will help them gain a, a proper biblical understanding of this notion of divorce and remarriage. Okay, very good. Well, let's get into this very, very difficult topic. So, welcome back. As we are continuing our study in the book of Mark, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, looking at verses 1 through 16. So Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Now, as we walk through this, it may at first seem that this passage is out of place because it returns to this theme that we saw earlier in the book of Mark where Jesus is now confronting again the religious leaders. Because ever since chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what is going to happen during his passion in Jerusalem. And he's talking to them also about their role as servant leaders in his church. But this passage does fit well because we're going to see, like we did last time, Jesus is going to have a moment of private instruction with his disciples, and he's also going to carry forward the challenge of discipleship in these first 16 verses. Now, I mentioned that the passion of Jesus in Jerusalem, and I want to make sure we all understand what this word means. It actually comes from a Latin word that simply means to endure or to suffer. And so the term, the passion of Christ, it's taken on a meaning in theology referring to a time from when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to his death on the cross. Okay, so it's that time period that he suffered before he was executed. And so most of Mark's uh, uh, re- uh, verses in chapter 10 can be read as Jesus teaching about the radical demands of the kingdom of God in terms of, number one, marriage, number two, children, and then number three, finances. And so we're going to get to the first two today, marriage and children. And with regards to marriage, Jesus' followers, they must not abandon difficult marriage relationships simply because people are not getting their personal needs met. And it fits in with the theme of discipleship, because authentic discipleship is not about self-gratification, but it's about giving oneself in sacrificial service to the kingdom of God. And so the powerful message of reconciliation between God and human beings is exemplified in believers through their commitment in a marriage relationship. And so the passage also connects to the passages before and after with the theme of God's love and concern for the lowest members of society, since in the ancient world, women and children were among the most vulnerable groups uh, who were exploited and abused. 
So that's a little um, preview as to what we're going to look at tonight. And so in verses 1 through 12, Jesus is going to answer a question about divorce by returning to first principles. And he's going to remind them that marriage is a sacred institution established by God at creation and entails a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And breaking this sacred covenant and marrying another is tantamount to adultery. And so that's going to be what Jesus is teaching on in these first 12 verses. So let's take a look at them. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they no longer say they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus had completed his ministry in Galilee, and he left Capernaum, and he was traveling on his way to Jerusalem. And where this took place was in a district that was ruled by King Herod. And so this may explain why the Pharisees were trying to trap him, asking him a question about divorce. So if we remember, if we go back earlier in the book of Mark, it was John the Baptist who was killed for preaching against Herod's adulterous marriage. And so it could be that they are trying to trap him and then go tell Herod, hey, remember John the Baptist, how he spoke out against this? Jesus is doing the same thing. Okay, that could very well be what's going on here. So Jesus encounters these crowds Okay, so these people are following him. And so even far away from his home base where he's been working, Mark is trying to show that Jesus has had a significant impact far away from there. And so people are coming to him no matter where he goes. And uh, we last saw the Pharisees back in chapter 8, verse 11, where they were asking Jesus at that time, they were testing him, asking him for a sign from heaven. And so this question about whether divorce is lawful is unusual since the right to divorce was generally assumed in Judaism. And they base that on a passage in Deuteronomy, which we're going to get to in just a few moments. But there was more than politics involved in this trick question because divorce was a controversial subject among the Jewish rabbis. And no matter what answer Jesus gave, he was sure to displease someone. Right? You ever have someone come and ask you something, and you've got a friend who thinks it's one, and someone else thinks it's another, and you have a belief, and no matter what you say, someone's going to get mad at you? Right? That's what the situation was. And so the way Mark phrases this, it's like they kept asking him. They hoped that they would provoke Jesus to say something incriminating against one Jewish camp or the other, or against King Herod as well. So what was debated among the rabbis was the legitimate grounds for divorce. So there were two different camps, right? So there was a stricter school of Shammai, which allowed for divorce only in the case of adultery, while the more liberal school of Hillel allowed it for almost any reason. And in Judaism, only a man could initiate divorce, though powerful upper-class women sometimes did. And we see a, same, a similar account in the book of Matthew, 
And it seems that um, this debate was over the legitimate grounds also for divorce. And so there the question is asked, is divorce allowed for any reason? And so the question here in Mark may be shorthand for simply the same thing. Under what circumstances is it lawful? They want to hear from Jesus. And it may also reflect a very rigid position by some Jews who ruled out divorce for any reason. And some Jews were citing the book of Malachi where it says that God hates divorce. But the reference in Malachi is somewhat obscure in the original Hebrew, and some scholars claim that instead of God saying, I hate divorce, it says the man who hates divorce, the man who hates and divorces his wife. So maybe if you have the new English, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the English Standard Version or the NIV, that's what your translation says, whereas other translations say that God says, I hate divorce. So at that time, it was unclear if a Jewish rabbi would have condemned divorce outright. So a casual attitude toward divorce really seemed to be the order of the day. What did Jesus, what was his attitude about divorce is really what they were getting at. And so it's possible that the Pharisees were aware of Jesus' strong stance against divorce, and they raised the question here to entrap him. So again, uh, possibly to get the information back to King Herod. And so in verse 3, Jesus asked, he answers their question with the question, and he says, what did Moses command you? But in, verse, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, Moses didn't command divorce, but he assumed its reality and provided stipulations to protect both parties. So he's kind of correcting them here, saying, look, Moses didn't command this, right? And so let's take a look in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and see what it says. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to remarry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So it's interesting because the law of Moses did not give adultery as a grounds for divorce, right? And so um, that seems to be an issue that they were dealing with at this time. But remember, in, in ancient Israel, when the law was given, what was the penalty for adultery? You were stoned to death, right? So really, divorce wasn't on the table then. It was, well, you're going to die for what you've done. And so um, whatever Moses meant by some uncleanness, um, whatever he means by that, it could not have meant adultery. So then why did Jesus say, what did Moses command you? Well, he could be saying it for a couple of reasons. He may have intentionally been drawing a contrast between the ultimate will of God and what God permits. And so by referring to what Moses permitted, the Pharisees, they're looking for loopholes. They're looking for ways to get out. What can they do and still remain in the legal limits of the law? And Jesus redirects them from what God permits to what he commands. What is his ultimate will for human relationships? And so what God commanded was a lifelong commitment to the marriage covenant. 
But what he permitted was divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. So that could be one possibility of why Jesus said the word command. Another possibility could be that um, his statement may have been an invitation to the Pharisees to correct, right, to correct him by acknowledging what Scripture actually said. See, by asking what did Moses command, he invites the Pharisees to acknowledge that Moses never commanded divorce, but he only permitted it for less than ideal conditions. And so they were treating Moses' teaching on divorce as a command when, in fact, it was a concession by God in light of human depravity. And so, again, in verse 4, we we see here that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And again, it neither mandates divorce nor sets out legitimate grounds for divorce. But the sole purpose of it was to forbid a husband from remarrying his wife after he divorced her and she remarries. If her second husband divorces her or she dies, the first husband may not remarry her. And so the reasons here are unclear, but it it may have been to, to emphasize the finality of divorce and to protect the woman from accusations of adultery or from the first husband's attempts to ruin her second marriage. That could be one reason. Or it may have prevented the first husband from exploiting her for financial gain by remarrying her to reclaim the dowry or to get an inheritance from her second husband. Right? See, human nature hasn't changed much, has it? Right? We're all looking out for things and how can we angle things. And so uh, we have these, these stipulations in place. And so the law protected the wife by restraining the husband from impulsively divorcing her and abusing her instead of treating her like a human being. And so without a bill of divorcement, a woman could easily become a social outcast and be treated like a prostitute, and no man will want to marry her, and she'd be left defenseless and destitute. So by giving this command to Israel, God was not putting his approval on divorce or even encouraging it. Rather, he was seeking to restrain it and to make it more difficult for men to to dismiss their wives. He put sufficient regulations around divorce so the wives would not become victims of the husband's whims. So in any case, the rabbis found in this text justification and legitimation for divorce. So while the Pharisees saw in the Deuteronomy passage law, Jesus saw it as concession because of the hardness of human hearts. And so we see this this term hard-heartedness five times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it always refers to the stubborn resistance to the will of God. And so here the term indicates insensitivity to God's kingdom purposes, resulting in disobedience and even outright rejection. See, God did not sanction divorce. It is never good or right, but it is sometimes necessary because of human fallenness for preventing even greater harm. But that was never God's intention for marriage. And so to demonstrate this, Jesus is going to take them back okay, to the nature and purpose of marriage when God first created it. And so in verse 6, it begins from the beginning of creation. right? So in man's pre-fallen state, <clears throat> before Adam and Eve sinned, According to Jesus, the creation account, it establishes a heterosexual, lifelong, monogamous relationship between man and woman. And any other sexual union outside of God's purpose and will 
for human sexuality is something that is not lawful. And so being one flesh is a very powerful image. In in a mystery, and I, I do believe this, in some mysterious way, God actually takes two individuals and makes them a couple. He binds them together. And over the years, I've had an opportunity to to, to meet and talk with, with people who are going through divorce or people who, who are divorced. And I hear over and over again how painful it is. And I can't help in my mind picture why it's so painful for, for one of the reasons is that your body okay, is being torn apart because he says they made one flesh. Notice Jesus didn't say he made them one spirit. He made them one flesh. And so I think that's one of the reasons why divorce is so hard. It is so devastating because our body is actually being torn at that point. It's being separated. And so um, Jesus is saying that this new, this new entity here takes priority over allegiances to both parents. He leaves his father and his mother, and it takes, it takes precedence over individual rights. And so the two are now responsible for the needs of one another. And so while this spiritual element is vitally important in marriage, the the emphasis here is on the physical union. Again, the two become one flesh. And since marriage is a physical union, only a physical cause can break it, either death or fornication. And so uh, Mark doesn't include an exception clause that Matthew includes, but neither does he say that death breaks the marriage union either. And so Jesus is going to conclude with an imperative as he talks to them. He's saying, you know what, since marriage is a sacred union and it's accomplished by God himself, no human being has the right to rip that union apart. And so separate is a word commonly used for divorce. And so likely this person that he mentions here is the husband, since again, it was usually the husband who initiated the divorce. And so, according to the rabbinic tradition, a divorce can only be accomplished by the husband, and he would simply send his wife away with a statement of her right to remarry. And so Jesus attacks this casual attitude towards divorce and calls hearers to honor the marriage covenant. So that teaching is done, and so in verses 10 through 12, Jesus now pulls his disciples aside, and he's going to do some more private teaching with them. So let's take a look at verses 10 through 12. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and remarries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So again, we see uh, Jesus providing this instruction to his disciples And so in light of the casual attitude in Judaism uh, regarding divorce, Jesus' strong statement about divorce must have really surprised the disciples. You know, it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal? And Jesus is telling them, this is why this is a big deal. And so, um, you know, not only is divorce contrary to God's purpose, Jesus said it actually results in adultery when the divorced spouse remarries. And so we think back to what he just said in verses 6 through 9, right? So if the first marriage is permanent in God's eyes, then remarriage after divorce is the equivalent of adultery against the former wife. Do you see his logic here? It never ends. So if you go and you marry someone else while you're still married to someone here, 
That's adultery, right? And so that was Jesus' point. And so some have claimed that Jesus here allows for divorce, but he rules out remarriage. But it really goes against the passage in two ways. First, divorce without the right to remarriage was inconceivable in first century Judaism. Of course, if there were divorced, the woman had the right to remarry. And so by its definition, a woman had the right to remarry after divorce. And then second, while Jesus acknowledged the reality of divorce, he never condones it. He views it as contrary to God's will. And so divorce is contrary to God's purpose for marriage. It arises from hard human hearts, and it produces spiritual adultery. And so that was Jesus' point. And so Mark adds in here about a woman divorcing her husband here. And again, it was very rare um, in the Jewish world, but Mark is also speaking to Greeks who are converting to, to, uh, to Christianity. And so for them, it was not uncommon for a woman to initiate divorce. And so he wanted also them to know, and again, that very well could have, these words very well could have come from Jesus as well. There's no reason to indicate that they, that they didn't. But he makes it clear that it applies to the other party as well. And so let's talk for a moment here really about the heart of God and the significance of the law. And so really Jesus teaching here, it parallels his teachings in other places in the gospel tradition where he pushes beyond the external regulations of the law to the nature and purpose of God. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted a legal ruling from Jesus on the legitimacy of divorce. And so, but Jesus, he refuses to play into their hand. And so, uh, instead of ruling on legitimate grounds for divorce, he turns them to the more fundamental issue, the true nature and purpose of marriage and the hardness of hearts that leads to divorce. And so he reminds them that, that marriage is a sacred covenant between God, a husband, and a wife, where the man and the woman commit themselves to a lifelong one flesh union, to love one another, to sacrifice themselves for one another, and to work constantly towards reconciliation. And so this relationship really, it reflects the true nature of God because he's all loving, he's all giving, and he's working constantly to reconcile his wayward children. So do you see this, the way God created marriage? It's a picture, it's an extension of his character and who he is. And through marriage, we get a glimpse of God on earth and, and his true nature. And so... Divorce should be an inconceivable situation in which both, when both parties are committed to promoting the best in the other person. And so the Pharisees come, they come seeking some legitimate ground. That is God's will in regarding divorce. But Jesus responds that God, God's will was clearly set out for marriage in Genesis 1 through 2 long before any kind of regulations for divorce were given. And so we have this lifelong commitment here, and therefore divorce is outside of God's perfect will. And while Jesus acknowledges that divorce happens and is regulated, therefore, by an Old Testament law, it was always as a condescension of human fallenness. And Jesus also implicitly redefines divorce in this passage because Judaism defined it as a husband's right and then debated under what circumstances he could exercise that right. 
But Jesus points out that divorce is not a right, nor is it a privilege. He reminds them that it is always contrary to God's will, even though it is permitted in certain circumstances. And so that was his, his, his teaching on divorce. And now he's kind of going to turn a little bit, and he's going to go and be talking about um, this, this childlike faith that is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. And so this discussion related to children that we're going to get into here, it really follows um, right here on this discussion of marriage and divorce. And you think, well, this is kind of strange, going from marriage and divorce to talking about children. But women and children were often victims of exploitation and abuse in the ancient world, as they still are today. And so Jesus has great concern for both of these groups. And in these two passages, they are in line with his teaching elsewhere about defending the cause of the lowly and the outcast. And so this passage also introduces requirements for entry into the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that again next time uh, when a rich man asks Jesus, what does he have to do to earn eternal life? And so the kingdom belongs to those who come to God with a childlike faith. And so... The kingdom of God is made up of children, like the ones we're going to encounter. And what Jesus is meaning here by children is those who are lowly and those who are fully dependent on God. So let's look at verses 13 through 16 at Jesus' teaching here. It says this, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So this text doesn't tell us who brought the children uh, to Jesus. It was presumably their parents. And we saw earlier in Mark's gospel where Jesus touched people to heal them. And people were, were pushing forward to touch Jesus. But here, the parents were seeking a blessing from this great teacher. And this is a common practice in Judaism. Now, the age of these children isn't specified uh, because the word that Mark uses is a general one that's used. It was used for Jair- to describe Jairus' daughter, who we saw earlier in, in the book of Mark. She was 12, as well as an eight-day-old infant. And so more than likely, Jesus was talking about babies or uh, very small children um, because Luke tells the same story, and he calls them babies, and also Jesus takes these little ones into his arms. So there's reason to believe they're probably very small. Now, the question then becomes, well, why then do the disciples rebuke these children and their parents for coming to Jesus? Well, again, children were generally viewed as having no social status. And the disciples then think that they are not worthy of the master's time. Remember last time we talked about it was very much a caste-like system. And people had certain social strata you belonged to, and you did not move outside of your assigned group. And so the disciples, they've repeatedly demonstrated pride and an exclusive right to Jesus' authority. So they're basically saying, you're not one of us. You don't belong in this group. We are the in crowd. You need to go away. And so, again, Jesus, though, he, he's, he's talking to them last time 
back in, in, in chapter 9, about welcoming children and not causing a little one to fall. But here now are Jesus' own followers, and that's exactly what they're doing. And so Jesus is going to correct them here. And so Jesus responds to what we can either consider indignation or anger towards them. And so it's the disciples' pride. It's their exclusivity. It's their lack of spiritual discernment. That is the issue here. And the kingdom of God belongs to those who are childlike in their faith. Now, again, we talked before about the Jewish view of children. So he's not talking about uh, being innocent or gentle or pure, right? But it means to be small or insignificant and needy without any type of social status. Those who come in complete dependence on God. Now, I'm looking around, and I know many of you uh, have had children and grandchildren probably, and maybe even great-grandchildren, and you know that when they're little, they depend on you for everything, right? There is nothing that they can do on their own. And this was the point that Jesus was making here. He's saying, you know what? If you're going to come to the kingdom, the kingdom is made up of people who are fully dependent on their heavenly Father. They can do nothing on their own without him. They bring nothing to the table. And so he is saying, you know, those uh, who want to enter the kingdom, they are dependent. They are receptive. And they accept their position in life and that of their father. And so that was Jesus' point here, is that children are helpless they are unable to save themselves, and they are totally dependent, and just and that, that is the way we are as well. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There is nothing that we can do to earn his mercy. We are completely dependent upon him for entry into the kingdom, and that is where our faith comes in. And so, uh, you know, think about it here. What do you, you moms, right, what do you do? when your child is hurt or has some kind of problem, right? You want to rush in and you want to help. And as a parent, didn't it make you feel good when your parents needed, when your children needed something? And they go, I need your help. I can't do something. And then we take that as a, as a great opportunity to love our children and do things for them. And what a great example that is here. You know, when we have problems, don't you think it pleases the Father when we come to him? Don't you think it pleases the Father when we say we are dependent on you for everything? We bring nothing. And it pleases the Father when we tell him how much we love him. It pleases the Father when we just spend time with him, getting to know him more. And it pleases the Father for us to acknowledge there is nothing that we bring that merits his mercy or his salvation. And so again, um, this really encapsulates the gospel. Because if we're going to live by faith, we have to have utter and complete dependence upon God. I was just leading our new member class this morning at our Klein campus, and we had a couple who was there, and they have a, they came from a different denomination. And so they were talking about works and what, well, what if I do this and what if I do that? And I said, so what about it? And they go, well, doesn't that earn salvation? And I said, let me ask you something. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. I said, do you believe he was sinless? He never sinned? Yes. So because of that, he was perfect? Yes. 
And I said, did Jesus Christ die for the sins of all the world? Yes. I said, okay. If I'm hearing you correctly then, the the sacrifice of a perfect sinless Savior was not enough to save you, but yet you've got the missing ingredient that's going to push your salvation over the edge, right? Because what you're saying now is that he wasn't enough. It's his you to save you, to get you across the finish line. And they're like, I had never thought of it like that before. It's like, again, right? Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross that I cling. And so Jesus is saying that those who want to enter in the kingdom of God need to have this faith that completely depends on God, understanding that there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that we can bring to him. And so we see as we close in, in verse 16 here that uh, the parents were bringing their children at, for a blessing uh, from Jesus. And so he welcomes them, and he is, is welcoming them, and he's illustrating here that he will welcome those who the world does not consider worthy of his time or attention. And the children are to be welcomed into the kingdom because they epitomize trust and dependence on God. So he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. And again, that was a very traditional way in the in for the Jewish family to bless their children was to do exactly what Jesus did there. So that was his teaching on children. Next time, we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching uh, on money with this, this rich young man who asked Jesus about entering into the kingdom of heaven. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we will be dismissed then. Father, how grateful we are for, first of all, for, for marriage and your design for that. And Lord, I know that there are people here in this church or people all around uh, who have been divorced. And we know, Lord, that uh, when we ask for forgiveness of any sin, that you forgive us. And so, Lord, we know that um, uh, uh, if ones here are divorced, that that does not keep us from heaven, but we must repent of that um, and then uh, ask your forgiveness. And we know that you will forgive. And Lord, um, also, uh, it is a great reminder too on this lesson about having a childlike faith, about letting go of anything that we think that we have in this world that would earn your merit or that would earn your salvation, that would earn your grace and your mercy. And Lord, for us to completely and dependently rely upon you to supply not only all of our needs, but also our eternal salvation. And Lord, I pray that as we leave, as we go back into our neighborhoods, as we go back to uh, our schools, our places of work, Lord, I pray that um, we would uh, just want to extend that mercy and that reconciliation that you offer to us, to others, that we would freely tell them the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Lord, that people would turn to you and choose to follow your son and choose him as their savior. And Father, we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, thank you for that. Now, as we're dealing through stuff in our lives, uh, both biblical topics and other things, it really helps for us to, when we hear information, then to reprocess it in maybe an order of importance. Mm -hmm. So today, as we've just heard the teaching, what would you say is the big idea or the thing people need to let rise to the top? Because sometimes we'll hear the big idea, right? But all the other things may distract us. Mm-hmm. the extra information, all of that. What would you say the big idea today is the thing that our listeners need to walk away remembering? Well, 
I think Jesus gives us some great principles here about marriage and really how it is um, an aspect of discipleship because authentic discipleship is not about self-gratification, but about giving oneself in sacrificial service for the kingdom of God. And so here's how it plays out in marriage, right? Uh, So many times what can happen in marriage relationships is one person feels, well, my spouse doesn't satisfy me anymore. Now, I can mean that in a number of different ways. You know, you can take that um, in different ways. However, oh, my needs aren't being met by my spouse. Um, Therefore, I need to find someone else. My spouse isn't making me happy. But what if God's plan for marriage is is not about making us happy, but rather making us holy? And that's not unique with me. I've heard that before, right? And so, um, when we take the focus off of us and having our needs met, and instead, we decide that we're going to give ourselves to our spouse in a sacrificial way, and we pour ourselves into them and serving them. What a great picture that is of Jesus, who is the servant who came to pour himself into the lives of all of his followers uh, as an example of what it means to serve others for the kingdom of God. So what you're telling us is that marriage is like every other relationship that we have, we need to be like Jesus, and we need to think of other people first. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> it's almost like God is consistent all the time in every situation. It's beginning to look like that a little bit. <laughs> okay, very, very good. Now, now that's the idea. Now, everybody's sitting around going, okay, you've just told me that. It is very simple, but it is not easy. No. How no. would we apply that? How would we work that out in our daily life? Yeah, so one of the things is is that this marriage relationship, the relationship between a husband and wife, it really reflects the nature of God who is all-loving, all-giving, and working constantly toward reconciliation with his children. So here's how the, what that looks like practically with our spouse. Um, you know, we are to try to love them at all times. And again, that, that can be challenging, just like with us. There are behaviors that we engage in that God's looking at us as as our father looking at us going, you know, it's hard for me to love you when you're acting like this. <clears throat> really? That I don't think God ever says that to me. I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Right. It happens to us all, right? right? All giving, right? We don't hold back from giving everything we have to our spouse. Um, and then finally, working towards reconciliation. And, and Pastor Marty, you and I have been married for quite some time now. Not together. No, correct. Yeah. Two, two women. Thank you for clarifying. Connie and Laura. Oh, very good. Very good. Just clarifying that for our listeners. Appreciate that. And so I'm sure your marriage is probably better than everyone else's in that y'all never fight, right? Oh, never. Never. Good, 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 right? But for, for the rest of us mere mortals, right, we argue. And this is one of the things I tell couples in premarital counseling all the time. I get like a Look, I tell the girl, I know you think he's just perfect, and you never argue, and it's so awesome. You know, there you will eventually have disagreements. You will have arguments with your spouse, but the idea here is for us to reconcile with one another and constantly be in that mode of reconciling because we see this throughout Scripture: is that God is continually reconciling Himself to us. And we're already reconciling ourselves to him. And we have this ministry, even Paul says, a ministry of reconciliation. And so, as we live that out in our marriages, it strengthens them. We, we seek to bring unity in the marriage. We seek to resolve conflict with one another in ways that preserve the dignity um, 
and um, uh, the, the, the God-like character in the other person. And practically, because you know I like these kind of things, mm-hmm. if two believers that go to church, love God, saved by God, read his, read his word and are studying, if they can't reconcile, mm-hmm. you know, being that there's even a deeper level of love there than the average relationship that, you know, friendship or work relationship, if you can't reconcile the home things, and that's between two believers who spend hopefully a lot of time trying to be like Christ, what hope do we have for our relationships in the rest of the world that are supposed to show people Jesus? Right. And and as our testimony. So if we can't reconcile with someone we love, we're close to, and is hopefully working as hard as we are at being like Jesus, what hope does the world have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I heard Adrian Rogers say this years ago, <clears throat> when couples are arguing and they say, well, we just can't get along. We can't get along. Adrian Rogers says, okay, well, I'll tell you what I know for sure. The Holy Spirit and her is not going to fight against the Holy Spirit and you. It's one spirit. So if there's conflict, you know, you're both not yielding to the Holy Spirit. Someone's holding on to something within themselves and not yielding themselves fully to, to God. Wow. That is deep. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So as we're wrapping this up, we do know that this is, this is a hard thing. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about divorce and relationship problems, there's a lot of folks that um, suffer and maybe they haven't been healed from some of the brokenness and the wounds from previous relationships and other things. What would you say to them if they're looking back, maybe they're in a relationship and and, and they see a lot of brokenness, maybe they haven't seen a lot of reconciliation. What would you say to them a little word maybe to give them hope today mm-hmm. um, as as they go about knowing that, that they can change and that God can change them. So do you have a word that can just bring us some hope today? Yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus is making this point. Uh, he says that the two will become one flesh. So, and I honestly believe that when a man and a woman get married, they become one flesh or some type of union there. And so when divorce happens... One of the reasons I believe that it's so painful is that our body is, is literally being ripped apart as a result of that. And it is difficult to heal at times from physical injuries that we sustain. So, so many times we go and we seek medical care if we have a serious physical injury. Well, divorce, at least from, from the way I'm reading this passage, is it's a, it is one of the greatest physical injuries that can occur to our bodies, and we need to see a physician. And there is no earthly physician that can cure this. It is only God. So as we take our hurts, we take our pain, we take our sorrows, we take our regrets, those things, to Him, and we pour those out to Him and ask Him to heal us. When we get in with supporting and loving brothers and sisters in the Lord, and and, and to, to, if there's any other folks from other churches listening, I want you to hear me very, very clearly. The church has an incredible role to play in helping people overcome the pain of divorce. So churches have a choice. We can sit here on one hand and then look down on people and judgment, pass judgment on them for getting divorced and tell them what they did was wrong. Or we can say, hey, you know what? This thing happened. We get it. Um, we're not condoning um, <clears throat> someone... Initiating divorce because 
well, this person doesn't make me happy anymore, right? But we also know, too, that we have a role in helping people to overcome uh, those hurts and, and find healing and restoration and acceptance because, um, last time I checked, that's what we are called to do, to love one another, to support one another, to care for one another. I love that. And practically, again, in Spring Baptist Church, we have divorce care. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is a great ministry. It's headed up by Laura Hazelwood, and um, folks can look on our website or or check out all Facebook newsletter. Call the office. Mm-hmm. Um, n- know that Spring Baptist Church we we care, and and that we are helping to put things in place to help point people to God and mm-hmm. help them through that healing process. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned divorce care because it's not only uh, the husband or the wife who's impacted by divorce, but also children. And so we offer divorce care for children and this other uh, program for teens as well uh, who have been impacted by divorce. So at Spring Baptist Church, we want to minister to the whole family, everyone who's been involved and hurt by that. And and just so if you're not from Spring Baptist Church, you're listening. It's not a unique ministry to us. There, you can go to divorcecare.com or .org, and there's places, if you're in Florida or you're in New York or California or Idaho, you can look it up, and there are programs using that curriculum for the whole family mm-hmm. um, all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so we just encourage you to, to, get, to get some help because we do know this. We do know that this life is broken, and when we walk through it, we get hurt. There will be injuries. But as you said, we know the great physician. Mm-hmm. And we have his handbook in the Bible. Right. And if we can walk through it together, um, along with God's word, we can help each other, point each other to God's word, and your life will change and you will heal. It will be hard, but you will heal. Right. Well, on those words, we're, we'll kind of finish up today's uh, topic. But do you want to give them a sneak peek, everybody a sneak peek at what's coming next week in the book of Mark? Yeah, so next week, we are talking about how the love of money can actually hinder someone from entering into the kingdom of God. And I tell you what, when Jesus told this story, when when the disciples witnessed this exchange between Jesus and another young man, they were stunned by what Jesus told them because it went against everything in their culture at that time. And I think we'll find it very applicable to our culture today. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, very good. Well, thank you for listening um, with us today. We appreciate it. We know your time is valuable. Thank you for spending it uh, listening to us talk as well as hearing God's word being taught. Remember to like and share the podcast on whatever platform you're on and check out the show notes for supplemental material. Join us next week as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Mark.